Okay, would you open your Bibles, please, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Today we'll be considering verses 28 to 36. What an incredible moment in the life of Christ this is. What an incredible moment, unforgettable, for these three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Let's begin reading Luke 9, verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have shown to us through your word the beauty of Christ's glory. I pray, Father, that our understanding of your word and of your um, revelation would not simply be a, a list of points of doctrine. I pray, Father, that we would be having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, staggered by the beauty of Christ. I pray that our hearts would be drawn in. I pray, Father, that realizing His beauty and the supremacy of Christ, we would truly worship in spirit and truth and awaken to His glory. I pray that we would be encouraged and we would be resolved to do exactly what Jesus commands us to do in coming after him, that we would deny ourselves and we would take up our cross and faithfully all the way to glory, I pray that we would follow. Oh God, I pray that you would be gracious to give your Holy Spirit as we ask, just as you have promised that you would when we ask in faith. Give us your Holy Spirit for our help, for our faith, for our obedience. For Christ's sake, in his name we pray. Amen. I learned when I was on the verge of turning 17 years old that the Christian life cannot be lived according to 
our preferences and our plans. We have to lose our lives. I was on the verge of turning 17 when God confronted me with his call to preach the gospel. It came, and I I can't remember when the realization or the sense of that call, which was inward, I can't remember the first moment when I had the sense of it. But honestly, it it repulsed me. It, It came strangely. It came unexpectedly, and it came graciously. As I was completely undeserving of it, of course, just naturally speaking, but I was also at a very low point in my spiritual life. And so with everything that was in me, I resisted this call for the better part of a year because I understood exactly what it meant, that it was the call to lose my life. And so I fought it. But there was nothing that I could do, nothing that I tried um, that could shake the sense of, of God's call. Now, I couldn't have articulated it at the time. But my problem was, I did not believe that Jesus was worth it. I did not believe that Jesus was worth losing my life for, denying myself and and taking up my cross. I was at that point in my spiritual life. I had, if you would, uh, if you will, backslidden to that point. I had, I had sunk. I had regressed in my spiritual life to that point. I didn't believe that Jesus was worth that sacrifice. So when I finally did submit myself to the Lord's call, I still submitted very uncertain and not believing that Jesus was worth it. I saw it as exchanging one misery, which was disobedience. I was so miserable so down, so low for the better part of a year. But I just thought I was exchanging that misery for a different misery. And I just thought it would be more livable to have the misery of surrendering to Jesus in this way. But I was wrong about the trade-off. I was wrong about Jesus not being worth losing my life for. I was so wrong Counting all things as loss to gain Christ is not a loss. Giving up your life to gain instead the giver of life is not a loss. In this passage, we conclude with, in verse 35, this command from the Lord to listen to Jesus. And I wonder as we begin this morning, where in your life are you not listening to Jesus? Is there any aspect of your life, any activity, public or private, any relationship, known or unknown, that you have yet to surrender to Jesus, that you have yet to submit to his lordship? Is there a certain word of Christ that you are not listening to right now. Perhaps it is, as the great challenge is, perhaps it's that call to deny yourself and to take up your cross 
And when you hear that, we went over this last week, perhaps you are so tempted to just stop your ears and, yeah, 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 can't hear you, kind of thing, and ignore what Christ commands of all who would follow him. Or maybe it is simply a, a, a fear that is controlling your life. Maybe what you need to be tuned into Christ in is the word, fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But is there some area of your life, aspect, activity, anything, that you are not submitting to Jesus in? Christ's call is to lose your life, to die to yourself, that you might live unto God. We are so foolish. I, I try to think of what the comparison would be like in the world, comparing our hoarding different things in our lives um, to instead giving them up to Jesus. You know, it, it, I, I imagine it being something like we're obsessed with a mud puddle, you know, when we have the ocean to our back. And people are saying, that the ocean's just over there. And you're like, no, I love this mud puddle. Or you go to the, the Grand Canyon and you drive. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but I imagine it has parking lots paved somewhere. Um, and you, you go into the parking lot and you get out of the car and you're like, man, that is a fine looking crack in the pavement. And just, whoa, that is a, an amazing crack. And everybody's like, what? The grand and and you're obsessing over a crack or someone who is just you know the whole mountain to a molehill thing when they have Mount Everest at their back just obsessing over a molehill but all of these things all of those comparisons were just like that is so absurd I mean who would think like that I mean it's just preposterous right it's comical but none of those comparisons fit what it would be to to hoard the world to ourselves instead of counting it as loss to gain Christ, because we're talking about aspects of creation, and there's, there's ratios, you know? Like, let's say that the, uh, you know, the crack is an inch deep, and the Grand Canyon is yay so deep, and so you can make a comparison to, I don't know what it is, two miles deep to an inch, or something like that. Or the, the mud puddle is, you know, we got four square feet of mud puddle, compared to whatever the ocean is. But all of that is actually comparable, even though the comparison is ridiculous. But there's no comparison between the finite creation and the infinitely glorious Christ. Let's die to ourselves and let us not put it off. The entire Bible bears witness to the glory of Jesus, right? The entire thing. That's what we stress in in Sunday school. That's what I stress all the time. But we see it as we're working our way through the Old Testament in, in the Gospel Project curriculum. The whole Bible bears witness to the glory of Jesus. 
But when we come to this revelation of his glory, you cannot overstate the magnitude of this revelation and how truly staggering it is and how beautiful Christ appears here. One, because the event is so unique as the the hidden divine beauty of Christ is unveiled. And and there's never, there's not another moment like this moment that we call the transfiguration. But another thing that is so precious about this moment is where it falls in the timeline, where it fits, because it immediately follows Jesus' command to come after him and deny yourself. And to take up your cross and follow. And last week we were stressing how preposterous that would sound to the disciples. That's why they dismissed it. Jesus, take up your cross. And they are picturing a man hoisting his cross and trudging on quivering legs to a gruesome end. And that's, they're like, okay, this, it's gotta be a parable. It's one of the parables. And we're not gonna ask him about it. We don't get it. It's, you know, Maybe it'll make sense later on. But it's real. It's Christ's real call to all who would follow Him. So the question is, is He worth it? Is Christ worth giving up your life for? This revelation is the Father in heaven answering your doubts and your skepticism. In this revelation of His Son's glory, He is tipping the scales massively in Jesus' favor to show us that His Son is worth it all. He is worth it all. God staggers His disciples. And you are meant to be staggered by the vision of Christ's divine beauty normally hidden beneath his human nature that comes out in awesome waves here. Let's get into the text. Now about eight days, verse 28, after these sayings, that's again the sayings of the prediction of his death and the call to us to come and die with him. He took with him Peter and John and James. We're beginning to see an inner circle develop. We saw it in the healing of Jairus' daughter, With him, Peter and John and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. As I said last Sunday, Luke is the gospel writer who mentions the prayers of Jesus more than any of the other gospel writers. And sometimes those records are very quick mentions, like here. You can almost miss it. But again, as I said last week, every time we see these prayers, they signal for us a crucial development in the life of Christ, and it's no different here. So in verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. This, this, this glorification is so breathtaking and dumbfounding that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all describe it in different ways. So Mark says, He was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew says, He was transfigured before them and his face 
shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. It's as Jesus is seeking his Father and in communion with him that God lifts away the appearance of things to reveal Jesus' divine glory and beauty. It's like for a moment, you know, by faith, we believe that Jesus radiates the glory of God. And it was the same for the disciples because the appearance of the human nature hid that the visible glory of God. And so it was like for a moment that faith in the radiating glory of Jesus became sight just for a moment. So fleeting, but so awesome. Verse 30, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. So there is this glory brilliantly emanating from Christ. And Moses and Elijah are within the sphere of his light. It says at the end of verse 31, to speak with Jesus of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So the prophets Moses and Elijah, who in their lifetimes bore witness to Jesus, appear again on the earth to bear witness to him again. We have Moses, the great prophet of the tabernacle era, and Elijah, the great prophet of the temple era. Many have suggested that together they represent the law and the prophets. So it would be as if the whole of the Old Testament is standing up and now bearing witness to the glory of Jesus. They are here, it says, to discuss the departure that Jesus would accomplish at Jerusalem. What is that about? Well, we know, right? We know what it is. It, it's speaking about the, the work of Jesus on the cross. But that, that sounds on the surface like such a plain word, departure. And it's strange that it says he accomplishes, he fulfills this departure. Because usually departing, leaving is not a big deal. We don't think of it as something that we accomplish. Like when somebody leaves the church on Sunday. We don't watch them drive down the hill uh, you know, to Garland Gin Road and say, man, look at him drive. What an accomplishment. You know, we don't, we don't talk like that. So this is such a, a plain word, but it is loaded with meaning. I'll, I'll tell you what it sounds like in Luke's writing, in the original language. It sounds like this. Exodus. It's the exodus that he would accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, something else, too. Usually, we don't think of death as an accomplishment. And we know, again, we know how the story goes. We know that it is talking about death as the departure. But that's not usually something we speak of accomplishing. It's not something we do. It's more something that happens to us. And it's unfortunate, to put it lightly. It's tragic, really. So how could it be said that Jesus accomplishes this departure? He accomplishes this exodus because it is the second 
and greater exodus for the people of God. Jesus leading us out from a power much greater than Egypt, from the power of sin, the power of death, and the power of hell. That is the exodus that he will accomplish through his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. And that's what Moses and Elijah were discussing with him. You know, we say, oh, to be the fly on the wall. Maybe it would be more like, oh, to be the moth drawn to the light or something like that, just so we could overhear the conversation. But God reveals on a need-to-know basis, so we don't get the details. Now, Peter, it says in verse 32, and those who are with him were heavy with sleep. You ever notice that this guy sleeps a lot? I don't know if anybody is recorded to go to sleep more than Peter. And I know this is the first time we're seeing this in the narrative, but it's again, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, later on when in the book of Acts, when he is between two guards and he falls asleep on the eve of his going to be execution, which of course turned out for his deliverance. But I mean, this guy's, this guy can catch shut eye anywhere. But when they become, when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. What a, what an incredible moment. We, we think of the, the believer who has died. We speak of going to sleep and opening their eyes in glory. And this is really a preview of that because you see Jesus basking in the fellowship of his father radiating the brightness of his glory, sharing in the company of the saints. And all too quickly for Peter, it is time for Moses and Elijah to go. I mean, it's, why, it's obvious why he would try to extend this moment, because this has never happened before. And it's not really going to happen again until glory It's like a window to heaven has opened. And Peter wants to keep it open as long as he can. So it says in verse 33, As Moses and Elijah were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, it's possible for us to chalk this up to something that you would say when you're still half asleep. Or it's possible to chalk this up to something you would say if you were Peter, as he tended to often put his foot in his mouth. But the text says he is fully awake. And I believe, even though, well, I believe that he is trying to think as biblically as he can. But his intentions, as good as they are, fall flat. Let me mention two things, okay? Seeing the glory of Jesus. And here you have Moses speaking to Jesus of his exodus that he will accomplish at Jerusalem. So you have Moses, you have exodus, and you have glory. And what do you think of? Obviously, he thinks of the past 
and he recalls the history of his people and the giving of the law and the glory at Sinai and the establishment of the tabernacle for God to dwell with his people. I think that Peter is reflecting the the holy desire of every faithful Jew at that time. The longing for God to come and tabernacle with his people again. And so he wants, and that's the word tense there, is tabernacles. I think that he's wanting something to house this glory. But he's wrong. Peter's wrong on multiple fronts because first of all, he does this unintentionally, but he puts Jesus and he puts Moses and Elijah on equal ground. On equal footing. But Moses and Elijah were no different than you and me. They were merely human. As as great uh, of men as they were, they're still but men. And they needed Jesus Christ and the exodus that he would accomplish at Jerusalem for their souls just as much as you and me. Not to mention these men belong to the old order. And their entire ministries, their words and their works, pointed forward to Jesus. Jesus is not like them. Another sign along the way pointing to God's big things to come. Jesus is it. Jesus is the goal. He is the destination to which these men had pointed. And so, in a lot of ways, even though Peter understands better the glory of Jesus, there is still a misunderstanding and underestimation of the supremacy of Christ. And this word, this request, shows that. The second thing, the desire to construct tabernacles for the glory on hand is a a misunderstanding about Jesus. He doesn't understand how glorious Jesus actually is. But immediately, something happens to right the ship of Peter's understanding. And it's awesome. To show him better the supremacy of Christ and what it means with the coming of Jesus. What it means that God tabernacles with his people. Before we get there, I want to ask you, have you tasted and have you seen with the eyes of your heart, the eyes of faith, the glory of God in Jesus? Have you tasted and have you seen? Have you been staggered by the beauty of Christ? Listen to me. You're not denying yourself. You're not taking up your cross if you have not seen the beauty of Jesus. Because I guarantee you, with all that appeals and attracts in this world, if you have not seen better glory and beauty, a greater appeal in Jesus, you are not going to believe that He is worth it. Because Jesus Christ demands your all. He is Lord over everything. And He requires everything of His people. Have you seen the beauty of Jesus with the eyes of your heart? 
There is a time, I think, for so many of us when we believe, when we believed that the Christian life amounted to believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins so that I can go to heaven when I die. And what we fail to understand and what we often fail to teach people and to share even with children is that Jesus is calling us to come and die to ourselves now. It is not just death when I'm 80 or 90 or my grandma's 101, whenever it's going to be, then I'm with Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to be with me, if you're going to walk with me now, you must come and die. Die to yourself. Lose your life. Give up your ambitions and your aspirations and all of it to Christ. So is he worth it? As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. What is this cloud? That might seem like such an incidental detail in the text, but it's not. So what is it? Let me say, first of all, what it is not. Despite its appearances, the cloud is not a visible mass of condensed water vapor floating in the atmosphere. And it's not a network of remote servers hosted on the internet and used to store, manage, and process data in place of local servers or personal computers. In case you are wondering. This is the glory cloud. This is the clouds of heaven. So we're going to step back. And we are going to see how they so often accompany the revelation of the glory of God. The glory cloud was there when God called Moses from the top of Mount Sinai to receive the law. It says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. So many times you hear cloud, you hear next glory. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Later, when Moses begged God to continue to dwell with his rebellious people, he said, please show me your glory. And the Lord's response was, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. So, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And Moses' response was to hide his face and worship. When Moses had finished the tabernacle, get this, when he finished the tabernacle, it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
more than five centuries later, when the tabernacle, that glorified tent, was replaced with the temple under the leadership of Solomon, when it was finished, it says, the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. So in Daniel's vision, Daniel chapter 7, when the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, and from the Ancient of Days receives dominion and glory and a kingdom, how does Daniel see the Son of Man come? With the clouds of heaven. At his trial... At Jesus' trial, the high priest pressed Jesus and he said, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And at that, the high priest tore his robes and screamed the accusation, Blasphemy. When Jesus returned to the Father to be glorified in His presence with the glory that He had with the Father before the world existed, it says in Acts, He was lifted up and a cloud took Him out of their sight. Incidental detail, right? Just a coincidence, it's a cloud. No, it's not. Connect the dots. The angels announced that as He was taken up, so he would come again in the same way. And so Revelation announces, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Jesus said about his return, They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now a passage I think we know well from 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We'll meet them in the clouds. Meet the Lord in the air with the clouds. Incidental detail, detail, coincidence? Obviously not. Let's put it together. Let's connect the dots. Let's not, someone could think, man, in the clouds? We're going to get wet. Or, you know, as the cartoonish images go, the white puffy clouds that we get to sit on and strum our harps, and maybe if we're lucky, we can bounce on them and play hopscotch or something like that. This is always, in every passage, this is not a visible mass of water vapor floating in the atmosphere. It is the glory cloud which signifies the presence and the power of the glory of the only God. And so when Peter asks about these tabernacles and the cloud comes, and overshadows. We know why Peter was wrong, right? About wanting to construct tabernacles. Peter was wrong because God gave His Son. 
and all of God dwells wholly in Jesus. Jesus Christ is where the glory is. He is the dwelling place of God. He is the true tabernacle. He is the true temple. So the last thing that we need is tabernacles to build tabernacles that will house the glory that we see. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. There is so much there in, in verse 35 that we could... That, that's a whole sermon in and of itself that I'm not going to preach. And I know you are whispering thanks under your breath. Let me give you three things quickly, very quickly. Read Psalm 2. Jesus is God's eternal royal son. Psalm 2. Read Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Jesus is God's chosen servant in in whom God's soul delights, who is the light and the justice for the nations. And read Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19. Jesus is God's prophet to whom we must listen. All of Scripture bears witness to Jesus. So Moses goes, and Elijah goes, and it says that when the voice stopped speaking, Jesus was there alone. That's a statement beyond a mere fact. It has a great magnitude. Jesus alone. It's Jesus alone. Do you you want to see beauty and splendor and majesty? Go to Christ. Do you want to hear God's messages for the human race? Go to Christ. He is the Word of God. He is the brightness of His glory. He is the exact imprint of His nature. The image of the invisible God. It's Christ. And to be with Christ, you must deny yourself. And you must take up your cross. And I'll say again what I said last week. The first time you take up your cross is when you renounce your self-rule I'm my own Lord, my own boss, and your self-righteousness, I am my own Savior. When you renounce your Lordship and your ability to save, you take up the cross. You die to yourself and you begin to follow Jesus Christ. But you keep on. All through this Christian life, every morning that you rise, You hoist the cross to your shoulder and you get after Jesus. And you know, you know in your heart that Jesus is worth whatever following him costs. Because you have been amazed. You have seen in your heart and you have been amazed at the glory of God in Jesus. So you say, take the world. Give me Jesus. I will take up the cross. 
I will follow him outside the camp. I will bear his reproach. But I'm following Christ because Christ is all in all. He is worth it. He's calling you to him. Jesus, who is the radiance of God's glory, is calling you. The Father, whose delight is in his Son, is calling you to Jesus. He says, listen to him. Where in your life are you not listening to Jesus? What word are you stopping your ears to? Listen, if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, then nothing that he says can be safely ignored. Nothing that he says can be safely ignored. Let's follow after Christ. We'll bear the cross a little while. And then there is our inheritance to come. We will have the crown, the crown of life, and we will inherit the kingdom, and we will reign with Christ upon his throne for eternity. We will be with Jesus, and it will be all of this, all of this sacrifice will be worth it all. Let's pray. Father, help us, please. Our hearts are so weak. Naturally, we are, we're just cowards. We see the world. We're, we're attracted to the world. We question whether Jesus is worth it because so quickly the vision of his glory fades from our sight and we get consumed with the world. So Lord, I know that every heart here feels how desperately we need your help We need your merciful intervention. We need that irresistible drawing that only you can give. We need you. And we call out to you for your help. But Lord, we also know that you delight in every heart that honors your son. You have promised to exalt everyone who honors Christ. So we're encouraged, Father, as we pray for your help, by your spirit, to follow Jesus, your son, that you are going to give to us the help and the strength and the endurance and the faith and the obedience and the courage that we so desperately need. You will give it. We believe it. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.